the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. This is quite a strange week. I have my diary open on my desk in front of me. I'm old school. I have a paper diary. And every time I look at it, I'm reminded that Polly, our dress editor, and I should have been flying to the Tokyo Olympics this week, as well as Peter Nixon, our photographer. But instead, I'm going on a camper van holiday. But we're keeping the Olympic vibe going this week anyway, because our guest is Andrew Hoy. The Australian eventer is going to share some of his experiences from his seven Olympics, talk about his cross-country rounds and the horses he rode. If I had to put a ride down on video as what I would consider to be my perfect ride, it was with Switzerland around the Sydney Olympic Games. We'll also be talking to our news team about the latest developments as governing bodies start to talk about putting on championships again and racing looks at bringing spectators back to racecourses. Finally, vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine gives us a full lowdown on pre-purchase vettings and what to expect when you ask a vet to take a look at a horse that you're thinking of buying. You're going to go over all their skin, you're going to listen to the heart, going to look in their eyes, go over their legs, looking for any problems that may influence that horse in its current or future job. So, if you're still picking the shavings out of your horse's tail, finish off that job, it's time to get going. Moving on to our guest this week, we're talking a lot about the Olympics at the moment. Had it not been for COVID-19, the day that this podcast comes out is the actual day I would have been touching down in Tokyo ready for the Games. And of course, we all very much hope we'll be there in a year's time. But meanwhile, we thought it would be fun to indulge in some Olympic nostalgia. And my guest this week is the perfect man to do that with. He's a three-time Olympic gold medalist and has competed at no fewer than seven Olympics, the only Australian to do so in any sport. He is, of course, Andrew Hoy. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, Pippa. And it's great that you say that you would definitely be touching down because... I think as a non-athlete, your ticket seems to be more guaranteed than an athlete's ticket because not only we as an athlete, but also the horses as athletes, we both need to be sound to make sure that we have the performance to then qualify for selection to actually get to the Olympics. Yeah, I think our our selection process is a little easy. We do have uh, quite a lot of hoops to jump through with accreditation. And of course, I have had to beat my colleagues to to one of those golden tickets to the Olympics, but definitely easier than being a rider. Andrew, we're going to start by really rewinding the clock. Tell us about your very first Olympics. It was in 1984 in Los Angeles. 1984 was definitely my first Olympics in Los Angeles and albeit that I'd been to the alternative Olympics in 1980 um, but because of the political situation at that time the Australian equestrian team decided not to go to the Olympic Games and went to alternative Olympics which was very special because we did as a team Australian team win team bronze Los Angeles was absolutely massive I thought I thought it was one of the great privileges to ride on a cross-country course which we've I'd never done before and so that was very very special and a great place to um, start my Olympic career for sure. It's fascinating you mentioned that alternative Olympics because I've been working on a feature about that boycott and about the alternative events that took place in all disciplines at different venues around the world. You rode Davy at both that alternative Olympics and the real thing in 1984. And of course, he won Burley too. He was the horse who really powered you into the spotlight. Tell us a little more about, about Davy and, and how you came to, to ride him. We first 
looked at Davey hoping that he would be my pony club horse and get me to top level in pony club because I was 15 when I went with my parents to look at him. And then four years later, I actually was selected for world championships in Kentucky in 1978 and 1984 was Los Angeles. And so what was my pony club horse to take me to an alternative Olympics, Olympic Games, win Burley, two world championships, I was very, very privileged. And um, it all started with the relationship I developed at Pony Club through doing the egg and spoon race and the barrel race and the sack race and all of these things that you do at Pony Club. But little did I realize he was going to be the the horse that would take me internationally around the world. So he was a horse who, who came to you because he was, he was local to you where you were growing up in Australia? He was actually bred in Queensland on a cattle station. He had a very short um, racing career, obviously not fast enough. And he was then, during a drought, shipped by train with a lot of other horses to a sale complex where he was auctioned in like a cattle market uh, sale yard of where a, a man bought Davey. He was a dairy farmer and his name was Dave. And then a girl bought him from Dave, the dairy farmer, took him to two shows, a show jumping him. And then we bought him from the, from the lady. And Davey was at that time called Dave after the dairy farmer. And I thought, here comes Andrew Hoy riding Dave. I didn't think it was so good. So I changed it to Davey. And um, it was something that me at the age of 15 had no idea as to the career that he was going to give me. Only a very small horse, but very special horse. Mm, and quite incredible to have a horse, as you say, all the way from the egg and spoon race up to the Olympics and to go all over the world with him. And that was your first Olympics. But looking back at all seven of them, do you have a favourite Olympics, a favourite memory? Well, every Olympics is very special. And there are many stories that come out of every Olympic Games. But for me, the most special would have to be Sydney. And why do I say Sydney? Not only because it was in my hometown, not the fact that I won a team gold medal, uh, which happened to be the third team gold medal that I'd, I'd won, but also the individual competition that I rode in to win an individual silver. But the thing that for me that made Sydney very special was the Sydney Olympics brought the best out of the country and the best out of the Australian people. And when I say that, the Australian people, the volunteers, the Australian volunteers that were there really embraced in the fact of having the world come to them to be part of the Olympic Games in Sydney. And they just wanted everyone to enjoy the Olympics. In London, with the Olympics in 2012, volunteers said to me when I saw, that, saw me in the Australian uniform, they said, oh, Sydney was absolutely fantastic. We want London to be better Olympics than Sydney. And London was very, very special. But for me, being in my home country and having the success that I had 
made Sydney for me very, very special. Mm, and at that Sydney Games, there were two separate eventing competitions at that time. So you won the team gold with the Australian team on Darien Powers and then went on to ride in the individual competition and won the silver with Switzerland. And that also happened at Atlanta at the previous Games in 96, where you also rode in both competitions. Tell us a little about how that worked with having two completely separate competitions for the team and individual medals. Yes, you obviously had to have two horses that were performing well enough to be selected. And so I was very fortunate in that situation. At both of those Olympics, the team competition was the first event to be run. It was following the team competition where it would be the following day, or if not the afternoon of the medal ceremony, would be the start of the individual competition where the horses would have to then trot up for the grand jury. And so you did not have time to enjoy if you had had success, albeit you'd have a brief celebration and jump up and down with joy with the success that you had, but you had to forget about that performance and you had to then focus on a completely new competition. It was job done, close that door, open the next door and move on to the next event. So it, it was good. You didn't have time to think backwards. You always had to think forward. And Andrew, tell me a little more about Switzerland, the horse that you rode in the individual competition there. I remember Darian Powers, the great grey, one of the sort of hero horses of my childhood. But Switzerland is a horse that I feel I know a little less about. And I think maybe our listeners will be a bit less familiar with. But he is the horse that you won that individual medal with. Yes, I first got the ride on um, Switzerland at Bremen. And these were the days when... Um, you could actually take a ride like literally just before a competition and you didn't have to qualify at the four or the five, what is now five-star level. And so I rode him at Bramham and I actually won the competition there. And a girl called Gina Flood actually owned him and she was from Bermuda. Swizzle Inn is the name of a pub in, in Bermuda. And so that's what, why he was called Swizzle Inn, albeit that he was an American thoroughbred. He was a very special horse, very different from Darian Powers. Darian Powers, wonderful grey horse, wonderful charisma. Um, he, I described him as a very charismatic horse in the way that he just moved and he was very elegant. Swizzling, smaller, brown horse. He was a real little fighter, and I mean a fighter in the, in the right way. If I had to put a ride down on video as what I would consider to be my perfect ride. It was with Switzerland around the Sydney Olympics because if I did not have the correct rhythm, the correct speed to the correct takeoff spot at every fence on the cross country, he would have stopped. And with that, the last fence that I went to jump in the warm up for the show jumping was an oxer that I just put down a bit over a, a meter, a meter, a meter five not so wide. I cantered into it and he stopped. And for me, that was the best thing that could have happened to me because it just reminded me how positive I had to be and how accurate I had to be. So I turned round, came round, jumped one fence and then went into the show jumping and he jumped the show jumping round, which was clear. 
and he was a very, very special horse as long as you rode like an Olympic champion. And you definitely had to, to get the best out of him. It's interesting to hear the origins of his name there, because I think it puts a bit of a different emphasis on the way you pronounce it, knowing that he was named after a pub. So it was actually the Swizzle Inn, in as in pub rather than Swizzle Inn, um, yes. which is sort of how I've always said it. So uh, yes. it's fun to, fun to hear that story too. And you were part of that real powerhouse Australian team at 92, 96, 2000, winning three consecutive team gold medals. What was it like to be part of a team that was on such a high? Oh, look, it's every athlete's dream to be in that situation. And so that was very, very special time of my career. Everything that we did um, was very, everyone was very positive. We had really good riders, positive management and we were all everyone and it doesn't matter whether it's management or whether it's riders you all have to be hungry for success and i've said to management because i've had um, high performance managers come to me when they've just come into the position of being the new high performance manager and said andrew what do you need and i've said to them you know what it's what do you need as the high performance manager? You need athletes that are so hungry for success that they need to make sure that every detail is covered and there is no room for anyone who's not hungry for success. Mm. Real thoughts there on how you can, can be in that team that's, that's, that's having that sort of incredible run of success. And over that time, you've seen so many different Olympic formats as well, from the two horses in two different competitions through to jumping two show jumping rounds from Athens onwards. And now we're moving to a situation of only having three to the team in Tokyo. What do you think are going to have to be the team tactics with that in mind? Well, this might be a little bit of a conversation stopper because I don't believe there are team tactics the only team tactics are you have three dressage scores. You just have to finish on those scores. Straightforward advice there from Andrew Hoy. I think we'd all like to be able to follow that when we're riding our horses out eventing. Finish on your dressage score is always a good recipe for success. And of course, Andrew, you have a horse who is absolutely renowned for doing that in Vasily de Lassos, who's one of your potential Tokyo rides. Yes, I, I'm very fortunate. Like Vasily de Lassos is just an exceptional horse. And I've had some wonderful horses through my career, such as the ones that you mentioned, Darian Powers, Swizzle Inn, Mr. Prakatan, Moonfleet, all horses, and also Davy in the very early part of my career. Very special horses. Vasily de Lassos, he is exceptional cross country, exceptional in the show jumping. I've got a campaign going where I have made it my personal endeavor to finish on 75 or better dressage score, 75%, I should say, dressage score or better, and I'm aiming for 78%. So I've been working on that during the lockdown, and I believe definitely going in the right direction. And so I can't improve his cross country other than making sure that I still keep him competition um, focused, um, also in the jumping competition focused, but then in the dressage, it's making sure that I have the technical skills to be able to reduce the score. Mm. And he belongs to Paula and David Evans, as does your newer ride, Kriva Cooley, who's another potential Olympic horse. She's a mare who you haven't had a great deal of time. She came from Michael Young. Tell us about her. Kriva Cooley 
is again an exceptional horse that I have not competed in a competition apart from a show jumping round in Belgium where I where I went. David and Paula Evans have been unbelievably supportive to me, not only with Vasily de Lassos, but also now with Creva Cooley. I think what Miko Leung has done is a very, very good job and it's a privilege to take a horse from such an excellent rider and have the opportunity to also take that into competition and to be able to just try and pick up with where Mikael is, is finished off with her. I think that um, I really like her personality. I think she's a horse that I can definitely work with. It's up to me to be able to find a way with her and not her find my way, but me find her way. I've ridden her in the one show in Belgium where I'd done some training with Nelson Pessoa for four days before the show. We only jumped small, like around a, a meter high, just doing some exercises. Then a few fences, when I say a few, probably about five fences at a meter 20, sorry, a meter 30 to a meter 35. Then went to the show. I said to Nelson, okay, I'm in the one star because it's an international show. Where do I start? They start at a meter 10 in the one star, go through to a meter 30. He said, we're going to jump a meter 30, Andrew. And with that, I said to him, I have not jumped her in a show jumping round yet. Are you sure that's the right thing? He said, yes. So if, if Nelson Pessoa says yes, this is what you do. You just do it. And um, she jumped three for three days, one round each at a meter 30. She jumped absolutely fantastic. And I've been lucky enough to see the pictures from that show. And we've got one in the magazine this week. And she looks looks very special and really looking forward to seeing you out cross country on her as well. She's an interesting mare because you are her fourth rider in international eventing from fourth different countries. She was started by Britain's Kitty King, then was ridden by a Swedish rider, Selma Hammerstrom, who rode her at a couple of junior Europeans before she went to Michael. So she's a bit of an international international traveller. She is. I hope that I am the rider that she enjoys being with the most. Um, I, I really like her as a horse. I think she's, she's very, very special. The lockdown for me has been absolutely fantastic in the fact that I've been able to just spend time getting to know her, working with her. I haven't even been cross-country schooling yet, so I look forward to that. I will be going shortly. And then also... Um, I'm hoping by the end of the year with the way the events are opening up that I will have a qualification for Tokyo next year that she would also be another horse that I can put forward for selection. Great to hear that, that you've got that, that great backup option and, uh, and really two horses who hopefully will be at the very front of the selectors' minds. Andrew, I have to ask you a final question, which is nothing to do with the Olympics. I've seen on social media that you have an incredible new lorry with a matching trailer. Are you going to have the absolute swankiest lorry in the lorry park now that we're getting back out eventing? Oh, like this lorry is very new because last night we had a little celebration drink on its arrival into the, into the yard. The thing that's very special about this, Laurie, is not just the graphics on the outside, but I have different transport configurations for the trailer as opposed to the truck. I've really focused on what are the needs of the horses, then what are my needs to be able to work out of it from the groom's perspective to my needs as a, as a rider. So the horse compartment, 
very special living compartment, very special for Stephanie and the children and the, should the nanny also come with us. So we've, we've tried to accommodate all of that and something that is, I think, very special and I've really run the extra mile with this is to make sure that the groom's accommodation, which is actually in the trailer, is very good, of which it is. And so it gives the groom the opportunity to have their own space in their downtime and be able to be comfortable and have what they need, as well as working hard, which they always do in looking after the horses. Mm. I'm definitely going to pop along and, and demand a guided tour, I think, later in the year. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Andrew. It's great to hear all your memories and uh, good luck as the season gets started again. Yeah, thank you very much, Pippa. Look forward to seeing you out and about. So I'm joined today by our news editor, Eleanor Jones, and our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello. Hello. Hi. Eleanor, you've been on holiday this past week. What have you been up to? Um, went up to Kiso, which was brilliant. I took both my horses and they had what was probably the first uh, stay away show or three day show since we were allowed to start show jumping again. And oh, it was so good. So good to be back out. Had a brilliant time. And how did all the new protocols work there? It was great worked really well and I think you know there was a lot of talk I heard from riders there about how much they like being given times so you would sort of look at your list in the morning draw an order there I am quarter to three jumping in that class so that means I get on at x time tack up at x time and it was brilliant worked really really well um, and of course as I think I said before in a, in a piece I wrote it's so good to have someone there doing the jumps in the warm-up for you yeah brilliant yeah, that's something we were talking about last week on the podcast, Eleanor, as well, when you were away, how much people are enjoying having times and someone to do the jumps and, and those new things, which hopefully we'll be able to keep even even post the COVID era, so to speak. And you mentioned that this was a stay away show. So presumably you had to be careful with social distancing in the stables and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, and the lorries were parked sort of with a good distance apart. Um, the stabling worked absolutely fine it just all worked really smoothly it was brilliant and a real credit to the team at Kiso I did try to swap my classes a couple of times and they were so accommodating and so helpful it was brilliant oh great it's really good to hear of shows managing to, to make things work and get back to competition what about you Lucy what have you been up to Nothing as exciting as Eleanor, um, but I've been just doing niggly things really um, you know the sort of things trying to get back out ahead of getting back out there if that makes sense so you know replacing a gas strut that had broken on my lorry and um, I've actually you know got my trainers back on and started uh, jogging again <laughs> my, my fitness suffered a bit over lockdown and not having horses to ride that I'd be normally riding and things so I've been uh, yeah getting the trainers on and jogging around the lanes a bit to sort of get us both and the lorry all ready to go again um, sooner rather than later hopefully. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I've uh, I had a jump on my horse last week for the first time since the start of lockdown. So I think that was a bit of a shock to his system. My uh, husband kept saying, "Don't do too much. There's only so many jumps he's got in him." <laughs> I think he thought I was going to spend the whole time warming up and never get to actually really jump anything that wasn't a cross pole. But uh, we got there, and it was it was good to to have a little pop. And Lucy, it feels like governing bodies are starting to ramp things up again with some some championships and bigger events being added back into the calendar rather than just cancellations. What's the news on that this week? Yeah, so exciting news this week. We've had that the British Dressage, um, the Winter Championships and the Aerofesta Finals, which were 
one of the sort of very early cancellations as a result of the pandemic. They were meant to be held in April. And of course, that couldn't go ahead. So those are now going to happen in August at Harpery, which is the original venue. It's all going to look a little bit different. Um, So all the classes are going to be outside, whereas normally you'd have the Winter Championship classes inside, you know, going under that archway. And there's quite an atmosphere there. So and there's not going to be any trade stands. It's going to be behind closed doors. But I think I was speaking to quite a few riders this week, amateurs and the professionals, and everyone is just really, really grateful to Show Direct, Harpery, British Dressage, that this is going to happen at all, I think. Mm, and even if it looks slightly different to be able to for people to be able to use those qualifications and get to the championship they've qualified for has, has got to be quite uh, quite a high priority for them and, and people as you say are going to be grateful and keen yeah completely and that was something that I think Alice Oppenheimer said as you know being able to get to the end of that cycle that championship cycle and and some of the well, the amateurs I spoke to as well of course they're working so hard and trying to fit in horses around everything when you work that hard it's really nice to have something to to aim for and to get that sort of all nicely tied up in a bow hopefully mm, yeah that's good news and there's some some news in racing as well that you've been following this week yes starting to look quite exciting there in terms of fans so Goodwood for the festival are one of the first sporting events um, trialing allowing crowds back in which is going to be interesting to watch and they've mentioned what a responsibility of course that feels so I think they're allowing members and guests to sort of first come first served and they're allowed up to 5,000 people as plus participants and that's on 1st of August so the final day of that of that five days and it's going to be well hopefully they're hoping to learn a lot from it and hopefully you know work towards putting together a bit of a blueprint for for other race courses and other sporting fixtures to potentially start letting fans back in which would be brilliant mm, and you mentioned some sort of possible drive-in uh, horse sport as well a bit like a drive-in cinema when we were chatting about about this sort of thing earlier can you fill us in on that idea yeah, so I thought this was this was brilliant actually. So this was from the Point to Point Authority. So we've been we've known for quite a while that they've been hoping at starting the season early. I think we were writing about this sort of back in March, April time when things were cancelled. But of course we you know, no one knew if that was gonna happen or not and they've surveyed lots of owners and trainers and so First of all, there's overwhelming support for that. Yes, please to go ahead. So they're going to be starting in October and they're hoping to have fans, spectators in and it not to be behind closed doors. But of course, for pointing is such an important fundraiser for hunts as well. And so they really do need people through the gates. So they've come up with a layout of sort of levels one to four as to as to how each fixture could go ahead um, in terms of social distancing, with one being, you know, pointing as, as we know it, to four being a lot more shut down by closed doors. And as part of that, they've come up with the idea of potentially allowing the public and owners in behind closed car doors. So, you know, even if it is running behind closed doors and they're restricted with numbers on site, that they'll still be able to have some people coming through the gates. And I've heard positive things. We were talking about this earlier from people that have been to drive through cinemas. So, I mean, could this be a better version of a drive through cinema where you get to watch pointing instead of a film? But who knows? It's, um, it's great. People are thinking outside the box and trying to get people back enjoying the sport they love in in as safe as way as possible really 
Mm, it's really interesting. Just before this, uh, just before we started recording, I was trying to book the, some theatre tickets for an open air performance. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm even going to book, but I was just really curious to go on and see how it worked with the social distancing in that stadium and, you know, in that more more closed environment of a theatre where they were basically, the tickets were in pairs and you had to buy both the tickets for pair and, and promise the other person coming with you was part of your household or, or support bubble. But but we do have the opportunity in our sport to, to manage things differently with it being outside and possibly, as you say, keeping people in cars. We know that things like picnic spots at the big events are really popular and some people don't really ever see the horses at all. So maybe if you could take your car and have a picnic and see the horses, then uh, that would be all round just great. Absolutely. And especially knowing how fresh those winds can be at uh, Horse Heath in February, um, having it behind closed car doors with some of those extra bits added on would be um, very enjoyable. It sounds great. And maybe we can even do what the drive-in cinemas do and have, uh, you know, be able to order drinks and food to be brought to our car as well. I think I'm in for that. I certainly would be. (laughs) (laughs) And Eleanor, talking about getting crowds back, you've been talking to someone who thinks we have a unique opportunity to sell horse sport at the moment, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, this is, it it sounds really sensible. This is Patrick Delaney, who is a lecturer at Hadlow College in Kent, and he's also been a course designer and and he's a British Horse Society instructor. And I think this is brilliant because like he's saying so many people who have been stuck indoors for however many weeks during lockdown and we've now got the tour not now maybe once uh, restrictions are eased enough that it's easier to get beginners into the sport to say here's an outdoor sport here's something you can do with health benefits mental health benefits here is our opportunity to get more people into the industry. And he was talking, I think, about selling the sort of outdoor lifestyle, not just the actual riding. Yeah, the phrase which I hadn't heard before, but apparently it's a big marketing phrase, is sell the sizzle, not just the sausage. And it it makes sense not saying just come and ride a horse, but look at this sport, look at the benefits, the outdoor lifestyle, the community, being with the animals, fresh air, health, relaxation. Possibly not all the time relaxation, <laughs> but um, but yeah, selling this as, as a whole thing and let's get people into the sport because that will benefit all of us. Mm, that's interesting. And is there any precedent in other sports for people changing their habits and, and leisure activities at the moment? Yeah, well, obviously that is a thing that there will there may well be a lot of outdoor sports trying to capitalise on this on this market. But from the beginning of lockdown till the late June, about 1.3 million people bought a bike. So this is obviously people thinking, you know, possibly with more time on their hands, gyms being closed, right, well, let's get out and do something outdoors. And obviously, you know, cycling and and riding are different, but there's obviously that, that desire there of people to get outside. And also one other thing that was suggested was if maybe people aren't going abroad on holiday so much, here's the opportunity to get them to, you know, riding holidays or breaks in this country and get them hooked Mm, the staycation, staycation with a pony sounds like a, a fun idea. Yeah. It's interesting the bike thing. We've uh, we've been using Boris bikes a bit in a bit in London and for both exercise and transport. Um, not sure that not sure that horses are going to become transport again like they were uh, before the advent of the car. But certainly for exercise and, and people wanting to to be able to exercise more when they can't do their indoor activities so much. Maybe carriages. <laughs> we could all be riding around Hyde Park in carriages <laughs> like it was uh, sort of the mid 1800s or something. Lucy, and on a serious note, you've been looking at financial support and how equine businesses can benefit from what's out there. What sort of measures are available at the moment that, that equine businesses could be looking at? So there's some interesting things. I say interesting, uh, as excited as you can get about um the Chancellor's summer statements, but it, there's definitely some things in there which I hope could 
could be helpful. And as I said, I think in the in the piece in today's magazine, it's not by any means, this isn't a magic wand. And it's certainly not taking away from the hardship that a lot of businesses and companies are feeling right now. But I hope there's a few things in there that, that could be helpful. One of those was there's a bonus for taking back employees off furlough and keeping them employed through January. And that's about £1,000 per employee. So it's, you know, a sizable chunk. There's also the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which I think people possibly have heard quite a lot about recently in in the national media. And there's some equestrian centres looking at how that can work for their sort of on-site cafes and your bacon butties when you're enjoying a a post-lockdown show and things. So I hope there's a few things in there that could be, could help at a time when there's a lot of challenges for businesses. Mm, that's really interesting. Like I obviously heard about Eat Out to Help Out and about restaurants, but it had never occurred to me that it could uh, could apply to sort of cafes at show centres. Although one of the show centres I go to frequently is Wellington and they have an extremely nice cafe. It's definitely an incentive to my dad to come along if he gets a, <laughs> if he gets a coffee from the, uh, from the cafe. So that's really, really interesting. And there are also some possible bonuses for taking on apprentices and young people, aren't there, Lucy? There are. There's some, again, quite sizable bonuses for businesses taking on, as you said, apprenticeships and trainee schemes and things as well. And I spoke to uh, Chris Hewlett this week of Haddon Training, who provide a huge amount of equestrian apprenticeships. And and he said, you know, there is an opportunity there for companies that if you are looking at, you know, genuinely taking on a young person to train them and not just for the benefits of, you know, a couple of thousand pound windfall there are you know benefits there and now is potentially a good time to be looking at that and um talis mattson as well of stallions ai services and the president of the equestrian employers association he also was very helpful when i was talking to him about this this week about you know the benefits of taking on new staff and younger staff but how important that it is to match that with experienced staff this is by no means you know a good opportunity to just take on a load of inexperienced staff for the sake of it at the expense of people that you already employ but it's about matching that and you know looking at what's right for your business and seeing this as a sort of an extra bonus on top of that if that makes sense because historically in the horse industry we haven't always been brilliant at treating employees right it is an industry i think that not everybody of course but has had there has been a history of exploiting people are keen um maybe and not not paying them properly or not having proper paperwork in place and and now we're sort of moving forward with that and I think a lot more employers are realizing that things have to be done properly with minimum wages and contracts and if you're taking someone on for training they really have to get that training it's not just a taking the case of taking the money is it absolutely and especially now I was at the equestrian employers conference back in February and minimum wage is an area that HMRC really, really are cracking down on. And the message very much from the the association and sort of a lot of the information that's coming out of this is that the majority, the vast majority of businesses and employers do want to do the right thing. It's just they, they might not know what the right thing is, if that makes sense. Of course, there are the minority who potentially don't think the rules apply to them, but the vast majority do want to do the right thing. And so it's about helping, helping employers to do the right thing. And then that in turn helps employees and that in turn helps the whole industry, really. So it's definitely the message was that these are hopefully things there to help businesses. And if we can help businesses and exploiting your employees is absolutely not an option to prop up a business that's going through difficult times. 
Mm. Well, it's good to hear about those those bonuses. And as you say, there is a lot of hardship and we don't want to, to diminish that. But hopefully some of these measures from the Chancellor can can help in, in some ways. And uh, and thank you also from the Intel on uh, drive-in. I'm hoping we're going to see you at a drive-in point to point in the autumn, <laughs> Lucy. Me, <yeah. laughs> and, uh, and, and Eleanor, I'm looking forward to seeing you selling the sizzle. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go back and book my uh, book my outdoor concert tickets meanwhile and uh, we'll I'm sure be talking to you both next week or uh, or later in the month. Thank you. Thanks Pippa. So now we go to vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine who's going to talk to us about pre-purchase betting. My eyes have just rolled um, just on the basis that I'm about to go through pre-purchase exams or vettings. You speak to a lot of vets out there and probably the one thing that no one enjoys about their job is really to do pre-purchase exams. It sounds really odd because it's part of our job and it's part of the work that we do all the time. But it's probably one of the most stressful things. I don't know, you you probably don't think it's stressful for the vet, but it's probably one of the most stressful things that we end up going out and doing because there's a great degree of pressure. There's pressure from the from the client who's buying the horse and pressure from the vendor who's selling it and everything wants that horse to pass. We want the horse to pass or be suitable for purpose. We're not in the business and everything to make sure that horses don't. And even with a thorough clinical exam, I remember my old professor at uni saying, if you don't look hard enough and you don't find something, you need to look harder. There is always something that you will find on that horse. But is it a problem for the, for the purpose of it? But thankfully, um, the British Equine Veterinary Association set out a set of guidelines for um, for vettings, which is a lovely practical protocol to go through, which covers virtually all the bases to make sure that you have you've gone over every square inch of that horse to make sure that you've at least looked at something to see if you can find an issue. Those of you that have never had a vetting before, um, I had one last week, brand new client, brought first horse, not very horsey at all. And you have to explain the vetting procedure and the vetting process. So when you speak to people, they say, oh, I want a two star or a five star, or a two stage or a five stage. It's correct. It's it's all the same process. I do question really why we or you would ever do a two stage unless there are a few instances when you probably have to do this, i.e. if you've got a foal or if you've got a yearling or an unbroken um, animal, in other words, you can't do the ridden exercise, you can't do the trot up, you can't do the flexion, something like that, or for insurance purposes, a limited exam may be appropriate. However, I would always recommend to have a five-stage done. So what does the what does the five-stage kind of um, come together as? Well, the five-stage is stage one, uh, a full clinical thorough exam. So you're going over that horse, pony, donkey, whichever with a fine tooth comb. You're going to go over all their skin, you're going to listen to the heart, going to look in their eyes, go over their legs, palpate all of their joints, and just be as thorough as you can, looking for any problems that you might find that may influence that horse in its current or future job. So stage two is a trot-up stage, essentially. So we're looking for any lameness. Walk, trot-up in a straight line, then we would do flexion tests. So flexion tests are, are a pretty crude way of kind of trying to find out whether if you put more pressure onto a joint, whether that horse becomes lame as a result of it. Uh, you can probably do a really quick test yourself. If you just literally bend your wrist over and flex it to its maximum capacity to feel slightly uncomfortable, 
hold it there with that pressure on it for about 10 to 15 seconds. Suddenly let go and then flex your wrist backwards and forwards and you'll feel it ache. Now that aching dissipates after another 5-10 seconds. Same kind of principle with a flexion test. Um, as you put pressure onto a joint, you cause it to be slightly uncomfortable. As you trot them off, that um, pressure and everything suddenly gets relieved and that horse should become sounder and sounder as it trots off. I would expect to see one or two slightly off strides and then complete normality after that. Um, also in stage two, we give them a lunge on the hard and on the soft. So again, we're trying to see whether any lameness can be seen on a circle. Um, the hard lunge is that one thing that everyone cringes at and I know I do. Thankfully, and again, touching wood here at the moment, I've only ever had one horse fall over on concrete in, in my time as a vet. Um, it still brings shivers down my spine every time I see a horse trotting and on a circle on concrete. But it's something that we have to do. A lot of the um, problems in their feet with the excessive camber and the tight turn can really be accentuated on a hard lunge. So it's really important that we do that stage. Stage three is the exercise phase. So what we're doing is we're again, we need to see that horse being ridden. So we're also looking again, and I think it's very important that you see that horse being tacked up. Uh, some of those horses, if they're a little bit girthy, so as you're doing that girth up, they resent the girth being done up. There again, all those little cardinal signs that you're looking going, okay, do we have any primary gastric, or primary gastric disease or any back pain or anything like that? So watching them being tacked up, how are they bitted and all things like that. And then watching the rider mount or get on board and then seeing that horse ridden in walk, trot, canter, gallop ideally, but a lot of people don't have those kind of facilities. But seeing that horse actually exercise to the point of where it is being stressed. And that's the important thing. We need to get that heart rate up in order to assess its cardiovascular function. So we need to listen to its heart and lungs to make sure no murmurs or anything like that or no respiratory noise or anything is actually more apparent at exercise. But that can take a while. If you've got a fit four or five year old running them around on the canter can take 20, 30 minutes before that thing is puffing like a steam train. You, you've got to really push that animal and everything can see how they perform. Um, in that stage, again, considering what they're going to be used for. If you're looking for something and you're, you, you want to buy a racehorse, well, you need to see it race. You need to see it in that environment that it's going to do. I'm not saying if you're buying a show jumper, you need to see it jump. That's not part of the process. But the idea is to put it within its context that is, if it's going to be a ridden animal, you need to see it ridden. So that was stage three. Stage four is a period of rest. So what you're doing is you're looking for the overall fitness of the animal. How fast does it recover from exercise? Um, usually at this point, I'm looking out for things like vices. Does it crib? Does it wince up? Does it weave? Does it do anything like that? I tend to go through their paperwork at this point as well because you want them to, to rest completely to see how fast the heart rate can come down and see how well they're coping. So I'll probably spend 15-20 minutes in, in this kind of section going through the paperwork, looking over everything, making sure the passports match and everything like that. Stage 5 is almost a repeat of stage 2. So we're doing a secondary trotter. Um, with flexion tests again and with lunging on the hard. The idea is to try and find out whether you've got any issues that have been exercise induced. So do you have an exercise induced lameness? So they're essentially the five stages of the pre-purchase exam or the vetting. Um, just make sure you've got a few things prior to the vetting as well. It's really important that you have 
a darkened stable so that horse can stay in there at least two hours prior to the vetting. Um, and in the darkened stable, it's much easier to assess their eyes and do an ophthalmic exam. You've got somewhere nice and light that you can actually go over it. There's nothing worse than doing a vetting in November at half past four in the afternoon. It's going to be pitch black. Even doing fluorescent lights in stables, frankly, if you're looking underneath them, you could miss a skin lesion or a sarcoid, something like that. So making sure you've got a good place to assess them and go over from head to toe. Um, a straight trotter, a nice bit of flat ground, a bit of concrete. Roads are obviously not ideal to do this on, um, but... Uh, Flat piece of the concrete down by sides of stables, brilliant. Also somewhere to lunge and somewhere safe to do a hard lunge as well. As part of the five-stage vetting process as well, there is a little uh, box on the vetting form saying whether a blood sample was collected. And we do, I do get a few questions saying, well, what are you taking the bloods for? We take the blood and it's sent straight off to a third party and it's frozen for six months. We don't have anything to do with it. We don't process it. Nothing's done. But if you get that horse back and in a week, two weeks time, you suddenly think, crikey, there's a great big change in behavior. It gives you the opportunity to go back and look at the bloods to find out whether there was any sedatives, any tranquilizers, any painkillers or anything like that within that blood sample. Um, no vetting is ever 100%. And I think every vet will completely agree with that, that we are as thorough as we can be. The, the beaver guidelines and the beaver protocol that we use is a very, very standardized protocol and it picks up the vast majority of vettings. And so we do know that the process that we use and this standardized process is as thorough as we can be, but it's never 100%. Just because as well, it's not pass or fail, it's suitable for purpose. It doesn't stop you buying that horse. Now, we will tell you what we have found and whether we feel that it is going to be an issue for that individual in the future. It is your decision whether to purchase. But if you do purchase on the basis that we have recommended that it's not suitable for purpose, then you may have issues with insurance or anything like that. So just to bear that one in mind, um, vettings are one of those little minefields, but we're there to try and help you out. Uh, we're there for everyone and we're there for the ind individual horse. We want them to to be sold we want them to move on and we want them to go out and compete so using that procedure is nice and simple it's quite quick i wouldn't expect a five stage vetting to take longer than a couple of hours really if you've got all the facilities there um and we're always open to chatting about it always chat about the findings it's very nice as well i always find it a lot easier if both vendor and purchaser are there and that, so everyone can hear it pardon the pun from the horse's mouth literally on the day um, but the vetting process does work and good luck with any future purchases thank you Ricky and that's it for this week's Horse and Hound podcast next week we'll be keeping up the Olympic theme by talking to Spencer Wilton who made his Olympic debut with the British dressage team in Rio we'll also be catching up with all the latest news and hearing more expert advice from Ricky this time about tetanus don't forget that if you would like to listen to our weekly podcast on Thursday, 24 hours before it goes on public release, you could do so by joining our Horse and Hound Plus service. To find out more about the benefits of becoming a Plus member, visit horseandhound.co.uk slash plus. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.